It's a Wednesday episode of Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And if it's Wednesday, it means Courtney Astafi is joining us. I'm Chris Quinn here with Courtney, as well as Laura Johnston and Lisa Garvin. We got lots of news to talk about. We're going to dive right in. How unusual is it for a statewide elected official to take a paid position on the board of directors of a for-profit company like Ohio Lieutenant Governor John Houston has done? If all elected leaders started doing this now, would they have even less of a connection with the regular people they're supposed to represent? Lisa, this just feels so wrong and icky. I'm surprised he did it. It did. And as I dove into the details of the story, I thought, oh, it's not that bad. But as I dove in, I was like, "Mm, it looks kind of bad because there seemed to be some conflicts of interest here. Uh, Lieutenant Governor John Husta joined the board of directors of Heartland Bank Corp. This happened in March, but we didn't know about it until last week because Heartland issued a press release after their annual meeting last week. It is a paid position. The amount was not disclosed, but Husta will have to declare that in 2023 for his mandatory financial disclosure. Um, Here are the things that make it look kind of weird. Uh, You know, Husted and his wife, Tina, bought shares in Heartland Bank Corp earlier this year before he was appointed. Um, Also, uh, let's see, there was something else. Um, I'm sorry, I can't find it in my notes, but he, there were definitely different conflicts of interest. Oh, oh, the Heartland Bank CEO, Scott McComb, gave $17,000 to GOP candidates since 2016, including $5,000 to the DeWine Custed campaign. And McComb's mother served as state GOP committee person. So yeah, it's it's looking kind of chummy. But I think it goes deeper than that because- When you run for public office the way he has his entire life, you're saying I'm about public service. We talked yesterday about Bill Denahan, who was so special because he spent five decades serving the community, not trying to enrich himself. When you put yourself up for office, you're saying I want to be your public servant, not I want to use this position to get lots of extra money for myself and influence in the business community. It's just it's who's he representing? Is he is he doing this to enrich himself or is he doing it because he believes in service? The other thing is he's kind of a lead in the state on economic development. Right. And now he's on a bank board. It's just the thing stinks and it's not generally done. You don't see it. But if this opens the floodgate, you know, does somebody like Justin Bibb then say, well, if he's on it. I can get on boards. And then who's he representing? The voters or business interests or, you know, it should be pure. And if anything, people should follow the example of Bill Denahan, not John Houston. This this is a stinky deal. Yeah, it is. And there really are no other examples of elected state officials taking a paid corporate board position. Um, but, you know, spokeswoman Haley Carducci says it won't distract from his lieutenant governor duties. And, uh, you know, they don't expect any conflict of interest. And they did a, a consult with an attorney, but still it it just, it doesn't look good. And then Heartland Bank's connections to the state, they're regulated by the Department of Commerce. They can hold cash and investments owned by the state. They got a $22,500 grant via the Ohio Air Quality Development Authority. So yeah, this could be really lucrative for them. 
Well, it won't distract from his duties if his intention of getting elected was to enrich himself. You know, I mean, would he get this job if he weren't the lieutenant governor? Probably not. Mm. He's getting it by... Look, think about the bank. Hey, we got the lieutenant governor on our board. We're the kings of the world. It's just, it's a terrible message. I can't believe that Mike DeWine hasn't said, let's not do that. But, you know, Mike DeWine has been invisible for a couple years anyway it's a it's a bad deal and and if it opens the door for a lot more of this it's going to breed a lot more cynicism in the government i i wonder if nan whaley will make an issue of this if she runs against dewine saying look at these guys they're they're so bent on enriching themselves that they're breaking with long-held tradition and joining corporate boards yeah, it'll be. It, well, we can certainly at the plain dealer in Cleveland.com make it a campaign issue. <laughs> we certainly will. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Two of Brown's quarterback, Deshaun Watson's accusers, appeared on HBO Tuesday night to publicly discuss their allegations that Watson sexually abused them. Laura, they were very graphic in their descriptions, and they certainly seemed believable. They did, absolutely. And they told the stories from their point of view saying what happened and that basically Deshaun Watson didn't want to wear a towel, that he repeatedly tried to move their hands towards his groin area and how uncomfortable and how disgusting they felt doing this and how scared. Um, One of them said that after this happened and she said no and kind of backed off and ended this massage, she said, he said, I know you have a career to protect. And she took that as a threat. And you coming from this very powerful sports figure, I, yeah, this is a really um, just emotionally gutting thing for them to be going through. On, on his side, his lawyer saying there's one lawyer that took this case. Right. A whole bunch of lawyers took it, refused. He denies all of this. Um, and he he did not appear on HBO. He declined to be interviewed. Right, right. But there, there's a whole bunch of women saying the exact same thing. This is not good for the Browns. The, yeah. the, I, the Browns just want this to go away. It's not going away. Uh, there are a lot of, of sex abuse victims that are paying close attention to this. Some have renounced the Browns for signing him while this is still out there. And we're still waiting to hear what the NFL is going to do to him. He might not even play this year, right? Correct. Exactly. And that's what the victim said. They said um, it feels like a a big screw you that nobody cares. He can run and throw. And that's what we care about. And I think that it's got to be so hard for a victim to to see like the whole world embracing him. Like he took all of his teammates on vacation last week. Right. To I don't even remember where. But and you wonder what it feels like to be in the Browns organization and to be a player and be like, I have to work with this teammate do you believe these women? And that's the thing. It's 22 stories. And Sol- Soledad O'Brien said he has 22 women telling very similar stories. And we've published, Adam Faris put together, you know, all of them. And they they read very, very similarly. And it, But they're saying, you know, it's just one attorney. This is the only attorney that would take the case. And he's, he's not getting the benefit of the doubt. He should be innocent until proven guilty. And in every deposition he gives, he's saying, I don't regret my actions because I did nothing wrong. But then there's this question of consensual sex with three women. And it's like, how does a, a massage turn into that? Yeah, I, the, the thing that's going to happen all season long is this story. This will be there right. all, you know, every game he doesn't play, it'll be a mention of how he's out, of, out because he was uh, 
suspended and this is going to be the story of the browns in 2022 right and it's not just a cleveland story obviously this is of huge national interest watching what happens and how the nfl is going to respond to it i mean i think everybody's waiting to see that and it'll affect probably all pro sports um and it, it has a lot to do with their fan base i do not think the browns realized what a what legs this story has yeah I think which they is thought it would go oh, i think yeah. they did i think they, they totally knew that this story had legs you're not going to cough up 235 million dollars no, if don't you don't have that. an ace in the hole i don't think they realized how long it would be oh. going on well and they, they of course they got him before trevor bauer was suspended for two right. years and mm. so They've got to be thinking, wait, we thought it was going to be six or eight games, but baseball has set a precedent. And you could say, well, it's a different sport, but that's a precedent. So I agree. It, and $230 million and all of those draft picks, it's like, oh, geez. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll be talking about this, I guarantee it, all through the rest of the year. It's today in Ohio. What happens next now that a Cleveland Starbucks staff has voted to form a union, joining a growing national movement? Courtney, it wasn't a huge vote, but it's a Cleveland Starbucks that now is unionized. Yeah, second in Ohio by just an hour, right after a Columbus store voted to do the same thing. So next up is contract negotiations. So the union's established, but they have to hash out working conditions, pay, and, and all that fun stuff. Um, there there are rules in place about, you know, working conditions once a union is established but before the contract is reached. So things are already moving and at play here even as they embark upon this negotiation process. So as soon as the vote is done, things change? There are certain things that have to happen right away? Yeah, that's what reporter Sean McDonald told us in his story. So it affects, you know, what Starbucks can do working conditions wise while the negotiations are happening. Yeah, Starbucks can't be happy, but this keeps on coming. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what kind of contract they get. That could take a long time for them to work out, though. That's generally what an employer does. It'll slow walk the, the union negotiation it's today in Ohio. Speaking of former forming unions, a former Amazon worker who was fired after working to form a union in his company spoke out Tuesday. Laura, what did he say? Basically, he came out completely with the story and said, I wasn't even, you know, doing this on the DL. Like, I was very open about trying to unionize. His name is Joey DeSotnik. He started working at the CLE2 Fulfillment Center in August 2020. He started organizing the union in the end of March, I believe, of 2021. And he said that um, he was let go because of this unionizing, which we knew be before. And now he's filed this in complaint with the National Re Labor Review Board basically to try to get his job back. Like, that's what would happen at the end of this if they're found to have fired him for the wrong reasons. Why did he speak out? Because was there some question about the timing or whether he was public? He just wanted people to be aware that, of course, I was being very public about forming the union. And of course, that's why they fired me. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, Sean McDonald was just able to get a hold of him yesterday. And I don't know. I don't think he was ever trying to hide his identity. Um, he obviously was openly talking about this on breaks and he got a list of 230 other workers interested in unionizing. So, I mean, he's fired. He's obviously fighting that, but I feel like the more 
information there is about this, the more people that are going to say, hey, that's wrong, Amazon. What's really interesting is he says Amazon doesn't want to keep its workers. I feel like every other business is trying to retain workers and do things to keep them happy. And they, according to him, just want to keep getting new workers in the door and then let go of the ones who have been there longer and are earning more money. Wow, really? That's the argument. They're just getting people in a couple of years. You raise up the salary scale, we'll throw you out. Yeah, I mean, that's his argument. And in Amazon, <laughs> Amazon is not reacting to that specifically. Um, I believe they put out a statement. But um, yeah, DeSotnik said supervisors were using computers and write-ups as a, quote, modern day whip. And the write-ups were used to speed up workers or to get rid of them. Wow, you're right. That is not the way it's working in almost any other industry. Every other industry has been reviewing their salary structures and changing their policies and their health benefits, trying to hold on to people. Uh, I read a story, I think it was in the New York Times this morning, that people who jumped jobs last year, many of them quit the new jobs mm -hmm. within months because they're insisting on being treated well. And if wow. they don't feel treated well, they're saying sayonara. So interesting that Amazon's not working that way. Right. And if this is all coming out, do you think you want to go work for Amazon right now? <laughs> I don't know. But he um, he said he had also won an all-star award and become a trainer. So this guy was, you know, considered a really valuable employee. All right. Well, we'll keep track of this one, too. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Nearly a half century after taking possession of it, the Cleveland Museum of Art has given up a richly decorated hunting rifle. What's the story behind the rifle and why is the museum giving it up? Lisa, a little bit of history, a little bit of World War II intrigue, a little bit of reparations. This is part of a trend in museums across the world to return things that were looted during World War II. And apparently this gun is one of those things. It's a 19th century French hunting rifle created by renowned French gunsmith Jean LePage at the dawn of the 19th century. It was in the collection of a Polish count, Count Krasiski. He had a big collection of militaria, and there's actually an 1856 photograph from a Warsaw exhibition that shows this gun and also helped the museum identify it and prove that it was a Polish war loss. So we found out about this exchange not from the Cleveland Museum, but from the Polish Ministry of Culture and Natural Heritage. They released a press release on uh, May 16th. Uh, the museum has not said anything about it, but they have a habit of returning things that have been proven to be stolen or looted. Um, that over a dozen objects from the museum's collection has been returned since 2009. You just wonder what percentage of the material in American museums was ob obtained in shady ways. You know, pretty much, you know, is every Egyptian artifact, should it all be returned to Egypt because Egypt wasn't selling it? I, I just feel like this is going to become... A, a much bigger trend in the end and there'll be fewer artifacts to be looking at in American museums. And, and to be fair, you know, the museum didn't know this gun. They didn't know the provenance of this gun. You know, they, they took it innocently back in 1966. I don't think it's been on display even for quite a while. So a lot of these, it's not like the museum is knowingly taking, uh, you know, looted artifacts, but it seems like, like you said, a lot of this ancient history probably was looted at some point. But I wonder if the museums have a responsibility now to go back and try and figure out the provenance of each of their artifacts. You're right. The museum didn't knowingly take you know, stolen, looted goods, but 
you wonder how many other things in their possession they have where they don't know the provenance, and if they start to investigate it, they might find that they shouldn't have possession. Fascinating story, and they're doing the right thing. Uh, It's interesting how long it has taken to repatriate that rifle. It's been 80 years, roughly, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, check out that story. It's a good one. It's on cleveland.com. You are listening to Today in Ohio. We have spent a lot of time talking about it, but has Cleveland City Council taken a concrete action on actually removing lead paint from city homes? Courtney, this was your story. Uh, well, it was originally, and our new ARPA reporter, Lucas DiPrilli, actually followed up on this this week. Um, but, but this is, um, on Monday night, council voted to allocate $17 million from the, the, the city's allocation of, of federal aid to put it towards lead remediation, making homes lead safe. Now, this comes on top of a prior $5 million that council put down, but this is a significant significantly larger chunk of money that that council's putting down here and this contribution brings the lead safe home fund to 115 million dollars and it really gives the orchestrators of that fund the ability to usher in what they're calling phase two of making cleveland lead safe so this new money is going to be also going to to owner-occupied homeowners right now most of the money that's floating out there for lead has been going towards rentals. So it's also going to pay for workforce development to train folks to remediate lead in homes and a variety of, of other lead-related initiatives. So in another life, many years ago, I was a reporter in Florida when they were spending a ton of money in public housing on lead remediation. And it turned out there was a good bit of fraud that, that a lot of charlatan companies stepped in didn't really do good quality work and the money was squandered. What kind of controls do you think Cleveland City Council will put in to make sure that this money is spent effectively? Well, you know, I think those on City Council would point to this coalition that's been operating in in concert with a bunch of local nonprofits and big organizations. And it's a lot of top tier kind of community organizations that are overseeing this. The Mount Sinai Foundation is kind of acting, I think, as as fiscal agent and managing the money for this coalition. So there's a lot of big name organizations involved. I think council's confident that that working group has the tools in place to make sure that the money's being spent correctly here. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's continued council oversight and discussion of this. Well, yeah, the question is, who who awards the contracts? Who are the companies that get the contracts? Will there be transparency about that? If the money is going through the hands of the coalition, is the coalition bound by public records law because it's public money, or will they claim exemptions? I mean, it's a great day that the fund has that much money. That's a serious chunk of money to finally deal with the long-term health of Cleveland's children. Now the rigor is needed to make sure it's spent right. We have a long history in this region of when there's big blocks of money, not not making sure it's spent the way it should be. And I guess that's part of Lucas's job as Stimulus Watch reporter. He'll be following that money. Would they be hiring like a lead czar? Have they done that? You know, like somebody who would oversee the lead, you know, distribution of the money? I think that's the coalition, right, Courtney? They're, they're, the coalition is in effect the lead czar. The coalition is really spearheading all of this, but internally, I, 
gosh, I, I'm pretty sure Bibbs hired a an internal city hall led czar as well. Okay. Well, we'll be following it. I hope they spend it well. It's today in Ohio. Is Ohio matching the just reported increase in alcohol and drug-induced deaths across the nation during the first year of the pandemic? Lisa, we've talked an awful lot about the trauma that people suffered during the pandemic, not just the first year, but pretty much ever since it started. These numbers are pretty horrifying as an indicator of how much trauma there was. Yeah, and you can crunch these numbers several different ways. Ohio looks better in some categories and not in others. This is a report from the Trust for America's Health and the Wellbeing Trust. They took a look at the alcohol, drug deaths, alcohol deaths, drug deaths, and suicides comparing 2019 to 2020. So nationally, alcohol deaths were 27% national and then 29% in Ohio. So we had more alcohol deaths here in the Buckeye State. Drug deaths nationally were 30% and then only 22% in Ohio, which is interesting because we've always been kind of an opioid, you know, epicenter here. So we had lower drug deaths in Ohio versus the nation. Suicides were down overall, down 3% nationally and down 9% here in Ohio. But then they crunched the numbers a different way. So they took a combined rate, combining alcohol, drug deaths, and suicides. Overall, all of those deaths were up 20% in the USA. That was over 186,700 deaths in 2020. In Ohio, up only 16%. We had 5,300 drug deaths, 1,599 alcohol deaths, and 1,644 suicides in 2020. The combined rate increased in every state except New Hampshire. It's it's really frightening numbers and a real indicator of the stress of the pandemic. Another indicator seems to be the the live shooter situations. You know, we, the week ago, last week, we had the horrifying uh, happening in Buffalo where somebody goes in with a racist intent and kills 10 people. And then yesterday we had somebody go into a school and kill the children. And the FBI two days ago released a report that said the number of those kinds of shootings doubled in a year, doubled in a year. And they're saying, yeah, the experts are saying that pandemic stress has led to negative behaviors such as this. And, uh, you know, the 2021 figures, once they become available, could be even worse. And interesting about the drug deaths, it affected all age groups except 75 and older, but it was strongest in those 17 years old and younger and young adults 18 to 34. You know, we talked before we started the recording that there does seem to be a lot more language in the political sphere that's about hate and violence. And you wonder whether all of that anger and hate drives some of the the indicators we're seeing with with the drinking and the drugs and the suicide and and all the the others. It's a it's been a tough time. And we've been wondering what what is this the effect on children being raised today have to try and look at that. It's today in Ohio. Where does the case stand for Cedar Point season pass owners who say the amusement park cheated them out of refunds during the first year of the pandemic? Courtney, they seem like they have a really good point about this, but they're having to go to court to to make it. Yeah, so there's two lawsuits ongoing. There's one this week. It's going to the Ohio Supreme Court for oral arguments on behalf of pass holders who, in the summer of 2020, season cut short. They didn't get all the bang for their buck after they bought season passes for the park, right? So these two lawsuits could 
affect 2 million pass holders across all of Cedar Fair's brands. That also includes Kings Island and 11 others. But for this one case we're talking about this week that's going before the Ohio Supreme Court, you know, depending on the outcome there, it could be kicked back to trial court and allowed to proceed. So there's been an appeals process. Cedar Fair lawyers are arguing, you know, the pandemic was an unforeseeable once-in-a-lifetime event. They extended pass benefits through 2021, so those who had the 2020 passes could still go the following year. But the, the plaintiffs here say, no, you don't give the service, you, you can't keep our money. So it'll yeah. be really interesting to see whether this is allowed to go forward as a result of this week's action. Yeah, I, I, it would be like if you paid for a car and the, the hurricane went through the car dealership, destroyed the car, and the, the dealer says, oh, well, you know, hurricane came, sorry, you don't get the car. It doesn't work that way. These people paid for something they didn't get. If Cedar Point would have given them the choice and said, look, we'll give you your money back or we'll extend it through 2021, okay, fine. But they, I just don't see how... Cedar Point doesn't end up paying this back with some interest and maybe can, some penalties. Can I add that I was a season pass holder? I bought our first ever season pass gold, <gasps> gold passes in 2019, and you got them for like the very end of that summer and all of the next for a hundred bucks, right? So obviously the pandemic, and then they, you know, they extended to 2021. So I probably got to go seven or eight or nine times with my kids and for a hundred bucks. And I thought it was like the best deal ever, but you have to think Cedar point, not very many people would have asked for their money back because you were giving them this great option of a whole nother season. So how much would it have cost you just to give that money back? Instead, you're fighting this massive lawsuit in the Supreme court and the court of public opinion. Like it just doesn't seem very smart. I know that that's the thing. If you would have given people the option, I bet most of them would have said, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll take it. Or even not given the option, but just if somebody emailed you and said, Hey, I don't think this is fair. Just like quietly on the DL been like, okay, like, sure. I don't get it. Yeah. They, they, they botched this and we'll see. I mean, I guess this has happened elsewhere in the country, Courtney, according to our story with mixed results. Um, yeah, so, so there was a, a, a similar case in, in Washington state, um, you know, involving a pass holder at Knott's Berry Farm. That's also a Cedar Fair property. And, um, you know, last month, a U.S. District Court judge ruled against Cedar Fair asked uh, for dismissal of the case. And he said, nope, let's move it forward. So that could be an indication of what's happening here. Okay, we'll follow this case. It's today in Ohio. The world is seeing supply chain problems go unabated since they began during the pandemic. How might that affect Great Lakes shipping this season? We turn to our Lady of the Lake, Laura. (laughs) That's actually the camp nickname that one of my campers wanted to give me this past weekend. (laughs) Um, But no, I love this story because it basically shows that the Great Lakes are just this very stable, steady presence in our lives. That shipping has been incredibly stable throughout the pandemic. It's actually been growing at a steady clip and they expect more growth during the shipping season. And basically, we're not seeing the, the same kind of congestion that they've seen on the coast. They they really want to increase more uh, capacity here so that we can get more things delivered to the Great Lakes. But the St. Lawrence Seaway, that stretches from the Atlantic Ocean 
into the Great Lakes, moved 38 million metric tons of cargo to ports in Canada and the U.S. in 2021. That was a 1.6% increase from 2020 season. And uh, yeah, the, the lack of change actually and the lack of problems really made the Great Lakes stand out in this whole very crazy world that we're living in. Yeah, I'm, I am surprised given just how many supply chain problems keep cropping up that it didn't impact it because I mean, stuff isn't available. Anybody that seeks to buy something now, it's a crapshoot as to whether it's going to be available. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of this is the com- is the very base stuff, right? They're the the ingredients to make steel, or you know, they're transporting wheat. They're not transporting a whole lot of finished products. Although coming from Europe, they can. I mean, the majority of traffic in the Great Lakes is those those Lakers that never leave the lakes. So I think that has something to do with it. But they've already seen more business because of coastal port issues. And um, they're getting more and more containers, which are those more finished products because and everybody's seen the container ships where like the whole container comes on and off the ship and it can go on a train or on a semi truck. But what we're also used to seeing in Cleveland is on the the west side of the river, that giant bulk terminal, right, where it's just the the aggregate stuff that goes to the steel mill. That, that's been very steady. Okay. Well, let's hope they have a successful year. It's good for the economy. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and that's it for Wednesday. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Courtney. And thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.